Okay, we are going to, we're continuing now in our study, since there are no questions from this morning or from last week, um, our new, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. To give you a review of where we've covered in the last year, going through a, a basic overview of Christian doctrine, um, we've covered God and His Word and His providence and sovereignty. We have covered um, man and being made in God's image and man's sinfulness and covered the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is, what He accomplished, the gospel, how one um, receives the benefits of Christ's work, and now having covered the Father, the Son, the Word, man, the gospel, sin, judgment, we're now moving to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We dealt with the Holy Spirit as a person, we covered the Holy Spirit as God, then we looked at the Holy Spirit's ministry and activity in the Old Covenant, and He he was involved at creation, and he was involved in inspiration of scriptures, and he empowered various people for works of service. Now we're turning our attention to the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. How, how does the Holy Spirit, what is he doing now? And it's just simply a question of economy. Um, not that there's any change in the Godhead, but the Holy Spirit's function, um, what he is doing, the ministry he performs, is markedly different under the new covenant than under the old. And if you turn to John 14, I think you'll see in, in, in the clearest simplicity what that distinction is. Um, John 14, 17. We'll start up in uh, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you and will be in you. And those are the blanks. He is with you, but will be in you. It's clear that the Holy Spirit had a ministry among God's people in the Old Covenant, yet what is also clear is His ministry now in the New Covenant is greater, more significant, deeper. And I think this distinction of with versus in being um, probably key. Go to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul is celebrating the superiority, what is better, what is great about the new covenant. Um, and in chapter 8, it is all about the Holy Spirit. <coughs> chapter 8 of Romans, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who... But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact 
Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And we've talked before about how the fact that no Old Testament saint, not even David in the most intimate Psalms, calls God Daddy. Israel corporately, Solomon praying for the dedication of the temple, could say that God is Israel's father. So when Jesus comes along and he teaches his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, that's revolutionary. And it anticipates this outpouring of the Holy Spirit begun at Pentecost in Acts 2, that now by the spirit of adoption we are able to call God Father. It's clear something's changed, something has gone deeper, something is broader, something is bigger, something is better than it was. And so I think John 14, 15, 17 here, sorry, um, is, is shorthand, the distinction between with and in. So yes, from what we've studied about the sovereignty of God and, and the sinfulness of man, people aren't going to turn to the Lord. People aren't going to believe his word unaided. The work of the Spirit, the Spirit's at work among them, with them. But his indwelling presence um, is a new covenant benefit that is not experienced universally by the Old Testament believers. Um, any, any questions on that point before we go forward? That's, that's the big distinction I'm trying to make. So it's not that the Old Testament saints had no relationship to the Holy Spirit. It's significantly different and less intimate than ours. That's, that's what I'm saying. Questions, thoughts, complaints, a haiku? Yes. Yes. I'm saying that what we've said about the sinfulness of man, depravity of man, man's need. If you were here even a week or two ago, um, Sunday morning when I'll pour my spirit out, we talked about how God is decisive and it's, he takes the initiative in salvation. That was true just as much in the Old Testament as now. Um, and so, um, absolutely, yes. He took the Holy Spirit's ministry to bring people to faith in the Old Covenant just as in the New. The difference seems to be that he's working around them. Even in John 14, when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he does that prior to salvation, not internally indwelling. So the Spirit is able to operate on people's hearts from the outside um, as he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Um, it would appear that he just continues to influence and direct and guide God's people in the Old Testament, that this indwelling is a new covenant blessing as as. That's my father-in-law. We had a good chat about this the other day. Um, so, yes, any other further questions on this? You guys are a real talkative bunch today. Where's Zach to throw me a bone when I need one? Anyway, okay. So let's move on to our blanks. 
John 16. Let's go to John 16. The upper room discourse in John um, chapters uh, 13 through 16 is some of Jesus' most focused discussion of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not the only place, but it's, it's one of the more focused sections. So in John 16, verse 7 through 8, we read this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because he did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and will see me, you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so even though Jesus has just said in chapter 14, verse 17, the Holy Spirit is with you, he can also speak in a very real sense that the Spirit isn't here yet. And I think what he's basically saying, he's not here like he will be here. But when he comes, here's what he's going to do. He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. When people become convicted of their sins, when people begin to ask the important questions and begin to search the Scriptures, it's only because the Holy Spirit has already begun doing a work on their hearts. So the blanks there are the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. You all good, copacetic? Okay. Next blank. Would someone be so kind as to volunteer to read 1 Corinthians 12, 3? That's a pretty clear statement about the Spirit's decisive work in conversion. And that's not to say that you couldn't walk up to somebody on the street and be like, here's a buck, say Jesus is Lord. Um, you, you could. Um, the point is no one can say this and mean it, just like no one can say Jesus is accursed and mean it. It doesn't mean a Christian couldn't misread a sentence and, you know, you, you ever do that, by the way? You ever pray and you're praying and you're praying and then you trip up and you say something that's heretical in prayer? And you're like, oh, sorry, my bad. Yeah, it can happen. Again, this isn't saying that a Christian cannot possibly say Jesus is accursed. I mean, I just said that right there, didn't I? Anyone reading this verse has to say Jesus is accursed by reading the verse. The point is nobody can say it and mean it. No one can say it sincerely who's born again. And nobody can sincerely say Jesus is Lord without the, the work of the Holy Spirit. So this gets back to the question, can people believe without the Spirit's work? No, they cannot. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So there's the blanks. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Questions? Okay. You guys just want to get through this handout, don't you? Okay. You're tired of staying in a handout for four or five weeks. So, okay, I will oblige. Fair enough. Yes! <laughs> now you can pause. you got to understand. I would so much rather deal with what you're thinking about and the questions you have. Like This is here as a placeholder or something to go through until it sparks thoughts and discussion. So, yes! Awesome!
Well, I, I think there's something to the fact that we're not to be quarrelsome. I mean, and so depending, I mean, if, I, if somebody, give me an example, if somebody just lost their child and they are broken in, in grief, I might say to myself, you know, they will probably view it as a curse and not a blessing. If I say, look, I know your child's dead, but let me tell you about Jesus. Now, I think some people could skillfully weave those two together and, and find a way in talking about the child's death to bring up the gospel. But certainly, I think, this, like, if you're at work and you're on the clock, your employer's not paying you to evangelize, that might not be a good time to share Jesus. Um, if he's saying, look, I'm not paying you to talk, I'm paying you to shovel and dig a ditch or whatever. But So I, I get that there is something to that, but um, I, I don't... But let me let me put it back the other way. Nowhere in Scripture do I see the Spirit will let you know when's the time to share the gospel. So if you perceive they're really hectic right now, they're running to and fro, I'll try to sit them down later on this afternoon or maybe tomorrow, or we're supposed to go out for lunch next week. I'm going to talk to them then because right now they're just zipping around dealing with stuff. Yeah, sure. I, mean, I think there's a room for that. But I, but if it's if what you're saying is I'm looking subjectively for some feeling and then I'll know when. I, I don't see that in the Bible. Um, and the real question comes down to, can it be done in faith? And, and, and the issue of can it be done in faith does not mean can I do it with feelings? Can I do it and say this is biblical? For anything we do. I mean, so if, if, if someone says to me, how can you, you know, um, mow your lawn in faith? I don't say, well, because I feel really confident about it. But it would be something like, well, because God has given us principles in the scripture of stewardship and of exercising dominion over the earth, me mowing my lawn as a way of providing stewardship for my home. It's an indication of exercising dominion over the earth, and it pleases my wife, all of those things the Bible says I should do. Um, that's how I mow my lawn in faith. I do it for those reasons. I could mow my lawn as an idolater. Wait till my neighbor sees that my lawn's greener than his. Oh, my lawn's going to look better than his for Fourth of July. And if that's what's going on in my heart, I'm not doing it as an act of worship to God, an act of honoring my wife, then I'm doing it as an act of idolatry. I mean, the statement, do all things to the glory of God, indicates we could also not do any particular thing to the glory of God, right? So to do something in faith is to do it based on biblical principles. So the real issue isn't, did I get a feeling, but can I do what I'm about to do in faith? Can I share and speak the words of life to my friend in faith? I think you can. I think in just about any situation, you can except perhaps when your employer has said, look, I don't want you guys chatting. I want you guys you know, entering data. Okay, fair enough. If you're receiving the payment, it's sort of an integrity issue to let him pay you to do something else. Um, or maybe I can't do it in faith because you know, they're asleep and I don't want to wake them up. <laughs> you know what I mean? But short of that, um, I, I don't think we should expect, not that the Spirit can't prompt us. I, I believe he does, but... I don't see anywhere in the scripture that we're to be looking to that as our guide. So yeah, there have been times where like I've been sitting reading a book and I'm you know doctor's office or something, and all of a sudden the thought comes into my head, "Hey, what's up with that guy?" And may that be the Holy Spirit prompting it? Maybe. Uh, I don't know. But what matters isn't I got to figure out if that's the Holy Spirit or if that's just something I ate. What matters is can I? No, no. But because you can chase your tail with this stuff, you can absolutely chase your tail with this stuff. And, and I've been there at a phase in my Christian life where it was kind of like, okay, was that the Holy Spirit? It wasn't the Holy Spirit. I felt something. And what matters is, and this is how I figured it out, whatever thought just came into my mind, can it be done in faith? If it can, then whether or not it's the Holy Spirit or not who prompted me to do it, God's pleased I can do it. Anything not done in faith is sin. 
And so if I can stand before God and say, God, this is faithful what your word said. I was trying to act in faith upon it to please you. God's going to receive it, whether it was the Holy Spirit who prompted me or whether it's the burrito I ate for lunch. It's good. Um, that's a long answer. that help at all? It's, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know your heart, and, and, I, and I really appreciate you being open enough to share this. So I, don't wanna, I, I won't sit in judgment on another man's servant. Um, all I'm trying to say is, it is popular in circles, oh, you'll know. But I think frequently that's an excuse people give to not share their gospel, share their faith, because I didn't feel it. Well, you know, um, I, I just don't know the Bible verse that, that tells you to do that. Um, not that... Anyone else jump in or weigh in? But but thank you for being open and honest. I don't want to. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, let's go. Let's go take a look. <laughs> Second Peter. Second Timothy. See, if I were somebody trying to dodge it, though, I'd say that's an exhortation to an elder and church leader. If I was trying to dodge it, that's what I'd say. Um, but let's take a look at it. Because I think we can find a text that will absolutely um, not be dodgeable. So, preach the word in season. Is what Second Timothy four? Is that four? Okay. Um, yeah, verse one and two. Yeah, yeah. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing. In his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now that charge is given to church leadership. So in some senses, you could, you could press that out to other Christians. But this is a charge Paul's giving to Timothy as an elder of this church, um, which includes the reproving, rebuking, and exhorting complete patience. Um, as for you, be sober-minded, Verse 5, because he says time will come when people will turn out and door sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves. Teachers, to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Um, so that, this is directly to, to Timothy. However, I do think those principles do apply to all Christians. I would back it up. I think an easier place to back it up would be 2 Corinthians 5. So, so I think by extension, the work that elders and pastors are doing is nothing other than what all Christians are doing. Um, but if you want something a bit more focused and a bit more directly applicable without as many in, in between steps, 2 Corinthians 5 is the one I go to. Um, because Paul starts speaking in plural we's. And you've got to ask, okay, what group is the we representing? Um, so we'll do that, and we'll follow the we's. 2 Corinthians 5. Um, let's go as far back as verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though once we regarded Christ in the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, 
if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now that anyone now is broadened out, whatever the us before might have been, the anyone is now universal, right? It's anyone. It's not church leaders only. It's not apostles and scripture writers. It's anyone. Okay? Anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So do you want to just limit that? I don't think you want to just limit that to church leaders, apostles, and scripture writers. I think the reconciled us is the church, Christians, right? So he reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So I would say in that sense, all Christians are ambassadors. All Christians are entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation, with a word of reconciliation. And the confidence we can take is that when we carry this out in faith, it is though God himself were making his appeal through us. So if we feel weak and frail and unfit and unworthy and incompetent, so be it. We're clay pots. But if we act in faith with this message of reconciliation, God himself will be the one speaking through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, and again, that's got to be a universal church we, we, might become the righteousness of God. So, anyway. So, by extension, Paul speaking to Timothy, preach the word in the season out, rebuke and exhort, do the work of an evangelist. Yep. By extension, what elders are doing specifically, the body's doing generally, sure. It's just such a specific charge to Timothy that you got to connect the dots to get from Paul's specific charge to Timothy to, you know, Joe Christian over here. I would think a fast, for me, a faster road to, to show that every Christian has this ministry is 2 Corinthians 5. But you can certainly get there your way, Elsa. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. You just got more in between steps. That makes sense? Um, questions on that? Yes. Hmm. Spirit tell you when to stop. What is that psalm? i got to find it. Your praise is always on my lips. Where is that? Oh, come on. It's 40-something or other, right? No? Help me out. My father-in-law is a church-planning pastor, by the way, so just, just so you uh, get a chance to say hi to Sam Farlow. Um, oh, come on. Anyway, yeah, I think as Christians, we should be, the praise of God should be on our lips all the time, and so, yeah, it, here's the thing I catch myself with. If I have like a way I talk as a Christian and then the way is, and then there's like non-Christian talking, Jeremy, that whole division is bogus. The whole point of whether you eat or drink, to all the glory of God, is again a pretty radical statement. That Paul is saying sitting down to eat a meal can be an act of worship or can be an act of idolatry. You know, getting a can of Coke from the vending machine and drinking it can be an act of worship or can be an act of idolatry. There is no sacred secular dichotomy. There is no, these are the holy things and these are the secular normal things. And I'm on holy time now and I'm on normal time now. That, that's, that's gone. 
the concept of the priesthood of the believer, that we are priests, we are a kingdom of priests to God, excludes that. Everything's holy. Um, everything is God's. There isn't, to quote R.C. Sproul, a single maverick molecule in the universe of which the risen Christ does not say, mine. Yes. No, it's a psalm. It's, it, what? No, it's, it's the word, look up the word continually. 49, 49. This is all good stuff. You guys are doing great. Look up the word continually. It's continually in like lips. That's it's not the one, that's a, these are all great passages. Let's read read Hebrews thirteen fifteen, Jacob. That's certainly the what my, that fits my criteria. It wasn't what I was thinking of, but it, this is great. You guys are doing okay. Yes, Psalm thirty what thirty four. Okay, it's close to the 40s. Let's see if this is it. When I was thinking, yes, it is. Thank you. You get you get a free cup of coffee and a donut hole. Okay, no, no. This is and this is this. By the way, shows you what a what a big biblical theme this is. This is awesome. By the way, that you guys could find so many passages that all testify to this. This is the one I was thinking of, but those were all great. Thank you. I will bless the Lord sometimes. No, hold on. I will bless the Lord on Sunday. No. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Now watch the movement, okay? The movement here starts with the individual. Starts with the heart and lips that aren't just speaking praise on Sunday morning. They're not just shifting into praise mode on the drive to church, right? But I want you to notice how the individual goes corporate. The overflow of this person's lips. My soul makes its boast to the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. So now, now there's somebody hearing it, which then leads to verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And so this individual worship, this individual praise of God that's authentic and not put on for show, like, oh, Christians are around. Praise Jesus, you know, which... Let's face it, we've all had those moments where like, you know, you're coming to church and you're grumbling with your wife or kids and then you see somebody and, no, just me? Okay, okay, fine. Um, you're like, oh, hey, praise the Lord. You know, um, this starts with something very sincere and authentic. It isn't just certain times and that leads to worship, corporate worship. Um, you guys found some awesome passages, but thank you, Siobhan, for finding the one I was looking for. Thank you. Oh, hey, okay. 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 Any other thoughts or questions on that point? Yes. Mm. Mm. 
No, 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 that's absolutely right. Do, do you guys know what the origin, the etymology of the English word hypocrite is? It comes from two Greek words, hupo and krite. Hupo is in a hupodermic needle, under, right? Krite, a mask, to speak from under a mask. It gets back to Greek drama where the actors would go out and they'd put the happy face on and they put the sad face on. And the concept is you can appear one way, but underneath you're another. Hypocrisy is, is you appear to be one thing, under that external, you're something else. And so if you've got a public you and a Christian you and a you and you hang out with your male friends and you all of a sudden you use different words and different language and you'll do different things. If, if, if your wife seeing you with your buddies would be surprised and shocked, if your work, coworkers would be shocked to hear you on Sunday morning at church, there's a problem. There's a big problem of integrity. Uh, and I mean that in the simplest sense of integrity, like the integrity of a whole. Is it uniform or is there divisions and break, tears and breaks? doesn't mean we don't speak different types of things in different contexts. You're going to talk, you know, Jeb Brewer talking as an engineer at the city council is going to talk about different things than he talks about here. But it shouldn't surprise anyone, that different person. Well, I've never seen that person before. You know what I mean? That That's an issue. Absolutely. Thoughts? Oh. That's the problem with Paul. You really want to, you want to narrow it down to... That's, that's a problem with politicians. I don't know if I want to get that decisive and definitive. Um, well, the problem, with, the problem with politics in general is it's the art of compromise and the art of the possible. So you're never going to get anything passed without compromise, which means right off the get-go, you got to form your coalition. The coalition won't be able to represent exactly what I believe and exactly what I think, so already you're shaving off things you don't want to say. Like, I mean, think about like even like something as simple as trying to get like anti-abortion legislation together, right? If we're gonna, if, and this is where it gets really slippery real fast, if we're gonna join together with others who agree with us on abortion, like say Catholics and Mormons, um, there's probably some things we're not gonna want to say in that group, otherwise our group's gonna blow up. So if we get together for our coalition meeting, it's like, great, we're all in favor of stopping abortion, and by the way, you're going to hell. Your group's probably going to fall apart pretty quickly, right? Right? So right off the bat, if you're going to do anything politically, you're going to have to start not saying certain things. Now, that doesn't immediately make you a hypocrite. It's the first step that way. You're not being the full you. You're not being everything you believe. You're, you're only going to say some things. That's the first step. You know what I mean? And then... It, the next ones become easier and easier. But that's, that's why politics in general is just such a difficult subject because it's all about the art of compromise. It's all about getting a coalition and a large group of people to agree to one thing. But by the time you get something they can all agree to, its edges have been filed down. I mean, that's from any angle, no matter what. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. It's a real, I mean, I don't know how Christian politicians do it. To me, it would just like be a minefield that I'm glad the Lord has not called me to that type of ministry. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying I, I don't know how. Um. <laughs> Sorry, what? Digging wells in Africa, what? I'm not aware of that, but yes. Um, it, yes, okay. Send me an article. I just, I don't want to weigh in on something I'm not aware of. So apparently Rick Warren is digging wells with Muslims in Africa. Send me a link on that. Yeah. Social justice. Yeah. And there's, and there's a sense in which, like, if we can be clear, right, we can join. I mean, could I go help my neighbor put out my neighbor's house? Could I, could I join in with my Mormon neighbor to help put out a third neighbor's house? I can't partner with you in ministry because 
No, but there's nothing about joining with them, grabbing buckets that's in any way gonna confuse anybody and think, oh, you guys are on the same page. Um, it, it gets more and more problematic when you're doing ministry together, coordinating over long term together. And again, it's a very slippery slope. So, uh, fair enough. Next, anything else? Um, Elsa is definitely keeping the discussion going. Thank you, Elsa. Okay, made it through three blanks this morning. Okay. Yeah. Oh, what? What was going on? Okay. Okay. John three four to eight. I think you guys know the blanks. We were here Sunday morning two weeks ago. We are born again by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit births us, grants us life. Um, go to Titus 3.5. And can I get someone to read Titus 3.5? So we are renewed by the Holy Spirit. So I think, I think the being born again is the first principle of life, and then the renewal is the ongoing sustaining of life. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, let's go over there. Let's get to the end of this sort of paragraph. I'm going to talk about all these things at the same time. If we can get done this first block, we'll be good for this morning. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse... 13, let's pick it up in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so does Christ. For in or by, Greek preposition can go either way, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So we are baptized into or by the Holy Spirit. Um, I think by is probably a better, um, better translation. Here, here's the picture. It's one of being in a sphere. So we're in the kingdom of darkness. And then the whole, because the word baptize, which baptizo just means to dip or dunk. Those in my, who are you in my uh, high school, Sunday school class, we used to refer to him as dunking John or John the dunker or immerser. Because, because taking baptize and transliterating it doesn't help anything, you know. Um, and, so it's just dip, dunk, immerse. When the ship sunk in Acts, it was baptized. The sea baptized Pharaoh's people. They didn't get sprinkled or dipped. They, they, got, they got underwater. And so the concept is you're fully placed into something. And so the New Testament can say things like in Colossians 1.13, he has taken us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're called positionally, we're in Christ. The concept is the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, we are placed into and therefore fully immersed, fully surrounded by, into the body of Christ. By one spirit, we're baptized into one body. Um, and so the spirit is the one who, who, who places us, as it were, who, who puts us in the sphere of Christ. Does that make sense? Um, okay, yes it does, or people don't want to ask questions. Fair enough, that's okay. In case you haven't noticed, I can talk. Yes, Elsa. Well, 
Well, again, Baptist, because the word becomes the Baptists and Southern Baptist domination. And again, he's not the Baptist. He's, first of all, the, the New Testament, John came baptizing. Or John the baptizer would be a, a more accurate. Dunking John's even better. I mean, seriously. Well, no, because no, the Greek word is baptizo. And so baptize is not a translation of the word. It's a transliteration. There are certain words like hallelujah, which, which haven't been translated. They just came straight over. And the problem is baptize is a pretty generic Greek word for dip, dunk, immerse. In English, it's only ever used in liturgical, cultic, I mean, by cult, like, like, like religious circles. It doesn't have that broader meaning. And so people don't know what it means. You say dip, dunk, you know, especially from someone in New England with Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, they know what it means. So I would be totally in favor of, of calling, I mean, I know it doesn't roll off the tongue as much, you know, the first Duncan Church of, you know, Martinsdale or something, I know it doesn't have the same ring to it. I think it's a lot clearer, you know what I mean? It also tends to settle the whole sprinkling debate, you know, um, pretty quickly, but fair enough. But no, John the Baptizer, sure, that, that would be even better than John the Baptist. Um, but I'd, I'd prefer to put it all in English and not Greek, which would be helpful. Um, anyway. Well, it's like all the discussion about languages and tongues. Can we talk about languages? When King James was translated, glossolalia, people understood in English, tongue meant like your mother tongue, language. No one uses it that way now. Nobody. And so the second you're talking about tongues, people think they're talking about something weird and spooky. Greek word glossolalia just means language. Pretty generic word. So the first thing I try to do if I'm talking to somebody is, can we agree we're talking about the gift of languages? Let's talk about the gift of languages and get it out of the spooky terminology that sounds, woo, you know, because it's not, the, there's nothing special about the Greek word. There's nothing, it's just language. Anyway, sorry, that's a rabbit trail, which I never do. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yes. No, no, I, I was told that once when I first became a Christian. We're going to get there, and I'll go here for a little bit now just because as soon as we finish the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're going to move into spiritual gifts. So in some sense, we're getting there. But I remember early on when I was a Christian, and I was trying to figure out whether the local charismatic church in town was the place I should be at or what. And I remember being outside of going, Lord, if this is where you're at, this is what you want me to do. Okay, I'm here. And I remember talking to one of the guys. And they would insist, if you're not baptized in the Spirit, you're not saved, which I would agree. Anyone? No, no, right here. Anyone? Um, verse 12 and 13. Um, For in one Spirit we're all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all made to drink one Spirit. No Spirit, baptism, no part of the body of Christ. First, I mean, Romans 8. Anyone who does not have Christ's Spirit is not part of him, right? So no, absolutely. You're not been baptized by the Spirit. You ain't a Christian. Um, and so I remember this guy trying to say that I would speak in tongues when I was baptized by the Spirit. And I said, well, what verse says that? And he showed me like two or three examples they point to in Acts. And I said, well, that just shows that that happened there. Why do you have to say that always happens? And he said, well, it just seems to be the pattern. I said, okay, here's the gospel as I understand it. And I laid it out. I said, please help me understand what I should add or subtract from that so that I could speak in tongues. There was a long pause because he knew the trap I was setting for him. And I wasn't trying to be, I was trying to be really obvious about it. I said, look, basically, look, man, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully man, on the cross for my sins, 
raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. I'm placing my trust in him. He's my sacrifice. He's my high priest. He's my mediator. Now, please tell me what I have to add or subtract from that so that I can speak in tongues. And the guy just looked at me and goes, give it time. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Well, he wasn't going to step in that landmine. He wasn't going to add or subtract, right? Because, you know, all of a sudden he knows where I'm going. So he just said, uh, be patient, give us some time. I said, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, um, so we're all baptized by the Spirit. Ephesians 1, we'll get done with this, this paragraph point thing here. Um, Ephesians 1.13. And this is important, and an important distinction of the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit from the old covenant ministry. We talked before about how the Holy Spirit would come upon people in the Old Covenant and then leave, most notably who? Who's the best example of that? Saul. That's why David in Psalm 51 says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He'd seen it happen to Saul. When God makes a covenant with David, he actually specifies that won't happen. If your son sins, I'll beat him with the rods of men, yet I will not take my steadfast love from him like I did Saul. And the Spirit would come upon people for ministry and then leave people for ministry. Saul, the Spirit of God came upon him. To do. So it's totally different in its significance than it is for us. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, let's look at this. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is a seal. The Holy Spirit is a deposit. The Holy Spirit is an engagement ring, if you will. The purpose of an engagement ring is to show the sincerity of the promise the man's making. So if he turns out to be a cad and leaves, especially in this context, he could go and prepare a place, and he never comes back, at least you got something to show for it, right? It's a seal. It's a guarantee. It's, 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 the down, it's the deposit to show that the rest is good. So the Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee, the deposit of the salvation that we will receive. So we have it in part now and not in its fullness. So the parts we have now, we have peace with God. Our sins are forgiven. The parts we have now, we, we have power to fight sin. But we still have sin, don't we? Ultimately, that'll be removed, right? We still have suffering, don't we? Now we see dimly through a glass. We're going to see face to face. Now we have bodies that groan and die. But death in the cross has been put to death. And so, in many senses, we have received really the appetizer course of all that Christ did and the gospel he brings for us. And that appetizer course is wonderful and wonderful. Think how much better the fullness is going to be. And the Holy Spirit is that seal, that guarantee. How do we know he will raise us as he raised Christ because we have his spirit? How do we know that we won't slip through his hands and ultimately perish because he gave us his spirit? How do we know... But he can be faithful and he'll keep his promises because we have his spirit, the seal and guarantor of the promises of what he has promised to us. We've got two minutes. Any questions on that? Come on, Jacob. You've got to have something there. No? Oh, that's new. At a loss for words. Ha, 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 ha.
His question, but go longer than two minutes. Okay. I'll tell you what then. If, if there are no questions, we'll get out two minutes early since I went about 10 minutes over in the service. Um, keep these sheets. I'll print off another 20 or so for next week, but we'll pick this up and go on. We're going to finish dealing with the New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll get into the issue of spiritual gifts. And we'll spend a couple weeks on the whole charismatic question and stuff, and that's where we're headed in the near future. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and I will see you all later.